The spark was the memory, I guess, of running away from home for a very brief period. So he is you! No, he isn't me. <laughs> there was such an incident once. No one knew, you know. All them years, no one knew. No one noticed at the time, sure. His dad didn't. Was at work who ever seen him? His mum up to her eyes in the west of Scotland. I've got that dairy voice in my head and I'm using those expressions, those ways of speaking that I continue to hear. Probably by, doesn't you know, mind even, probably. Just that he took off one afternoon with a bit of carpet under his arm, a yoghurt out of the kitchen and a wee spoon to eat it with. That was hit. That was all he took. I do expect a reader to keep up, but I don't think it's too much to ask. And I don't think that the form of language on the page is that difficult, actually, for readers to follow. Chainspotting, for example, is probably... Hello, and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. This summer, we've been hearing a little more from our amazing authors in a new expanded series of podcasts. We started out with Joyce Carol Oates, who confessed she struggles with John Updike. The rabbit novels now are almost unreadable. You know, they're heavy with all this specific stuff. Next, and Fiona Mosley nailed her colours to the mast in the debate about whether writers of fiction can write outside their own experience. So I'm pretty firmly in the camp that writers can tell stories that aren't their own, although I've not always been so clear on that. Both my novels then Jose Falero, voiced by Maria Jacqueline Evans, issued a call to the barricades. If people agreed with this and started doing this, you'd have a revolution. You'd have social... Next time we'll be welcoming Sabah Khan to talk about her graphic short story At the Door. But for this programme, we head north to hear from Donald McLaughlin, who started by reading from the opening of his story, Runaway. No one knew you know. All them years, no one knew. No one noticed at the time, sure. His dad didn't. Was at work who ever seen him. His mum, up to her eyes in the scullery, didn't. His two brothers didn't either. Sean, the next boy down. And wee Cahill, who to be fair was still a bit on the young side still. As was the baby of the family, Orla. You'd have expected the older wee girls... Kiralik or Annette or Bernie to notice but one of them at least. No way would the neighbours have spotted the wee boy wandering off. They were too busy getting over the shock sure of a huge big family moving in. Irish too, Catholic too, from Londonderry too, to have bothered learning their names even. Be that as it may, all these years later it took his wee niece to get the story out of him. Kelly, Sean and Marie's eldest. Was her Liam Towle out of the blue one day? Something she said or asked, no doubt. Course he made her promise first she'd never do nothing like that. Made her swear to God she wouldn't. Only then would he tell her about running away on time. About the time he ran away from home like. It was unlike him, he said. Not like him at all like, he went out of his way to stress. He couldn't mind but what age he was at the time. It was after they emigrated to Scotland anyway. Not that long after, long enough but, and before Bloody Sunday happened. He never said either nor what made him do it. Probably doesn't mind even probably. Just that he took off one afternoon with a bit of carpet under his arm, a yoghurt out of the kitchen and a wee spoon to eat it with. 
That was it. That was all he took with him, like. That was the fucking lot. McLaughlin's been writing short stories about a character called Liam O'Donnell for 30 years. So when he spoke down the line from Glasgow, I started by asking him to give us a brief introduction to Liam and his family. So yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years now, shocking fact. Uh, Liam is one of a family that emigrates, to use their term, from Derry to Paisley in the west of Scotland uh, in the early 1970s. He's one of seven children. He has four sisters and two brothers. The mother and father move across two, of course. Runaway, though quite a late story in terms of the 30 years of writing, goes right back to the very beginning, in a way, to the early days in Scotland. The other thing to say is that Liam is, uh, has a German model. I took the idea from a German writer called Alfred Anders, who created the character of Franz Keen to tell stories set in the Weimar Republic and the Third Reich, so the time of his childhood and youth. And I got round to considering that I could create a character, Liam in my case, to tell stories about the Troubles or sectarianism in the west of Scotland. You came across from Derry to Scotland with your family in the 70s too, didn't you? So, I mean, he's just basically you, right? We did come across in August 1970, it is true, but it would be wrong to equate Liam with me. I think I, in fact, give Liam quite a hard time. <laughs> One uh, model that I very definitely didn't have was John Boy Walton. I was aware growing up of that programme, The Waltons, and... John Boy, the good boy, John Boy, disappearing to his bedroom late at night to write down the events of the day. And that wasn't the type of writing that I was interested in. And there was no way that I wanted Liam to be a John Boy Walton. He's certainly not a good boy, is he? The other thing to stress is uh, I often quote the title of a memoir by Janice Galloway that appeared just six months before my first collection of stories. And she called her memoir, This Is Not About Me. And that summed up my approach to the stories as well and indeed that of Alfred Anders to his stories, because he wasn't writing about himself. He was using this character to write about the historical background, the political reality. It's been 30 years, but you're still writing about Liam now as a small boy, aren't you? Where did this story, the story of him as a, as a youngster, come from? It's true that Runaway is the story of, or a story of Liam as a young boy. Uh, in Derry, they talk about wee boys. There are wee boys and wee girls, and you can be addressed as such. So he's young in this story again. But in fact, in terms of my more recent writing of Liam's stories, there are very much longer stories where Liam is an adult. So I haven't stuck to the wee boy. I have returned to him. I mean, there have been periods when I haven't written Liam's stories, but he's backed by popular demand, as it were. Because when I do events in schools and so on, uh, I realise and have realised in the past these stories work. There are more stories to tell. I really should go back to him instead of insisting on writing entirely other stories. And what about this one? What was the spark? The spark was the memory, I guess, of running away from home for a very brief period. So he is you! No, he isn't me. <laughs> there was such an incident once, and I'm always mindful of advice given by a writer called Des Dillon, uh, who started publishing novels in the 90s when I was publishing my first short stories in magazines and journals. And Des always stresses that you should write the stories that you're forever telling in pubs and in the family home and so on. While I haven't told the story of Runaway over and over again, 
I think it has that something special at the core. It deserves to be told. And there's another one in my first collection called Aka La Giaconda, which has uh, Liam praying to the Mona Lisa, thinking it is the Virgin Mary in a Catholic classroom in the west of Scotland, in the hope that he won't be belted. And again, I have a memory of such an incident in my own school life. And I had told that anecdote many, many times in pubs down through the years. And people had always been insisting, you must write that story, you must write that story. And I often responded, no, it's an anecdote, I won't be writing it. But once uh, when on a walking holiday in the Highlands with some German friends, I got the response yet again, you must write that story, you must write that story. And while we were waiting for a table in a restaurant, I went out to my car and sat in the driver's seat and wrote the crucial scene. And so the 10-page story began to happen. It's these little nuggets that you grow something out of. And you see the potential for a story in them, I think, too. You see that wider issues are involved. And if you tell the story successfully, ideally from the perspective of the boy, from the limited perspective of the boy, and in my case also using that language, the language that surrounded him growing up, you might convey things about the wider issues that I could also write about in essays, but that doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, because the wider issues are always at stake in Liam's stories, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I write them. These are not about me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's only a minute's walk just from his own front door, but sitting under that bush by the Protestant chapel, he's a million miles away from home. He is a million miles away from home in a sense, but literally one or two minutes walk. And spoiler alert, the family don't even notice that he's run away. <laughs> um, but, but we experience this running away through the perspective of the boy. And he is indeed right next to the Protestant chapel. That was the working title of this story. But maybe it works only in the west of Scotland or in Ireland, because a chapel would normally only be Catholic for us up here. And the Protestant chapel would be called the Kirk or the Church. So there is an irony and a joke in that title that maybe didn't work for enough people. And then I, then I spotted the potential of calling it Runaway. What is it about telling the story from Liam's perspective that allows you to widen it, to broaden it in that way? Mm, I don't know if it's the fact that uh, I use that perspective that allows me to widen it. Um, the instinct to widen it and so on is there in any case. But what interests me is the limited perspective and using his voice, if you like a limited voice, but a voice that is very rich, that's full of warmth and humour and energy and so on, to tell the story. Instead of writing the title story of my first collection, An Allergic Reaction to National Anthems, I could have written an academic essay about nationalism, but that didn't appeal at all. What did appeal to me was writing the story of another memory of my childhood, which was of eight, in our case, children rushing for the television when the national anthem came, came on late at night in order to be the one to switch it off. And, uh, you know, you're, you're laughing even just at that one sentence. I managed to write that story, and it makes people laugh a lot. And it begins, the first half of the story deals with God Save the Queen, the second half responds to a soldier's song. I think Flower of Scotland is quoted in there somewhere too, you know. But the crucial thing is, a memory is at the centre of it, but you tell a story, you fictionalise it, and you use the voice of the characters in the story to tell the story instead of writing an academic essay in a very standard English. But Runaway's not just a story, though, is it? It's a story within a story, a story that only happens years later because Kelly gets it out of Liam. Is this frame around the story to remind you how far we've come? 
It's something I must say that happened spontaneously in the writing of the first draft. I was very aware, as the first sentences indicate, that no one knew about this story. You know, as, as I say, there was something that happened in my past that triggers the story for me now. But, you know, my family are oblivious to that fact. Yeah. And uh, I thought it would be fun to tell the story of a boy who runs away from home without it being noticed. But you have to find a reason for the story to be told later. So in the case of Runaway, uh, Liam tells the story to a young niece or she asks or says something that gets it out of him, literally. And someone else, because there is an unspecified narrator, another framework if you like, someone else with special access to the family and to family stories and who knows that voice, who shares that voice, recalls what Liam told his niece. Yeah, but these frames also a way of reaching out beyond that limited perspective that Liam has, maybe. Yeah, definitely. And kind of brings it up to date as well. If you were to set it entirely in the early 1970s, written in that voice from that perspective, it would be a different story. But as the story is told in the case of Runaway, people are looking back some, what, 40 years or something. And that allows another light to be shed on events and the story being told. Hearing you read from it earlier, Liam's voice comes through loud and clear. Is that how it comes to you as well? Is it a voice in your ear? Absolutely. I have to say that when you hear me read it, you hear me read it with a largely Scottish accent, which I've had since the age of 11. Whereas in my head, it's the Derry accent. An easy way to label it for us in the family is to call it Derry English. Because certainly I was aware, now in real life, my siblings are also aware of certain Derry expressions that we would understand and use and did throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s and so on that people around us in Scotland wouldn't necessarily know. And similarly, we were learning a different form of English without realising it in the west of Scotland. I've got that Derry voice in my head and I'm using those expressions, those ways of speaking that I continue to hear by, you know, going back and visiting grandparents, aunts and uncles and so on. My mother is still alive and... When she speaks to people at bus stops, for example, even now, over 50 years on, they say to her, are you over visiting? They can't imagine that she's been living here for five decades and more. And that's how the story is in your head. should go and take acting lessons or something in order to be able to read them accurately. <laughs> but I can convey the music and rhythm of them, but not the accent. But the voice is right there on the page as well. You've got like without the E, thon instead of that. Are you striking a balance between the voice in your head and the reader deciphering these unfamiliar spellings on the page? Or do you just write it how you hear it and then expect the reader to keep up? I do expect the reader to keep up, but I don't think it's too much to ask. And I don't think that the form of language on the page is that difficult, actually, for readers to follow. Trainspotting, for example, is probably much more challenging in terms of the language on the page. And I remember when Trainspotting the film came out in the 90s, the list in Glasgow and Edinburgh, the equivalent of Time Out, actually published a glossary to help people around Scotland with the language in the film, you know. Early Kilman as well, or Tom Leonard, in terms of the representation of the language on the page, might be more challenging to readers than my version of Derry English. But I've learned very much from Kilman, Leonard and others. Those are great heroes of mine. Those are the writers who inspired this approach in terms of voice and limited perspective. Can we talk ampersands and colons as well? I'm not interested in Fowler's usage. <laughs> <laughs> I shall say as uh, politely and gently and so on as possible. For me, Kelman is the example. You're writing down 
the voice of the character. You shouldn't attempt to censor that. You shouldn't attempt to standardise that. For me, it's like musical notation. And that's a phrase I think I've heard Kilman use also. And the use of the ampersand in my stories is a bit like that. I realised when you say mm aloud, there's hardly anything left of the word at all. And, you know, putting down an N with two apostrophes is almost too much as well in terms of the sound or the, the stress on that syllable in the reading of the story. My solution there was to use the ampersand. It's a visual clue. It helps break up the long sentence for the reader or to guide the reader through a long sentence with many clauses and so on. So it has a visual impact. And the same goes for the colon. Uh, I gather that my use of the colon is not that stipulated by Fowler's usage either. <laughs> I know I've got a, a longer Liam story which might appear as a book in its own right and that was read by an expert reader recently who commented on my Kelman-esque colons. So he or she obviously recognised where my particular colon was coming from. And again, I see it as something that assists the reader, that resets the sentence, as it were, and there can be more than one colon in a long sentence because we're not talking Fowler, we're talking about storytelling and the music and the beat and the rhythm. And if that has to be reset and a colon is necessary, then a colon is necessary. It's tempting to see your uncompromising approach to the dialect on the page as a reflection of your work as a translator. Indeed, it's tempting to see you translating that voice in your ear onto the page as another reflection of your work as a translator. Do you think speaking another language, working in another language, inevitably changes how you go about the business of reading and writing? I think translating can inform your own writing in terms of the approach. I wouldn't say that I'm translating what I hear onto the page. I'm simply putting down what I hear. By reading extensively in other cultures, reading in other languages, you also see other approaches to telling stories or to writing books, writing much shorter books than we are accustomed to in the UK. A writer like Urs Widmer, whom I've translated, who writes quite short novels. They're full of impact, they're full of energy, and he's another man of the long sentence. He died in 2014, sadly. I remember many conversations with him, and he would use the German verb, which is an English noun with an N at the end to make it an infinitive in German, and the word is powern. He was very satisfied that I could powern in my English translation of his work just as he did in the German. It was something that he appreciated. And he also read some of the Liam stories. And I know he, he read my first collection, for example, and was struck by the energy and the power, the thrust of the stories, the thrust of the language in those as well. So we were kindred spirits in that sense. I learned from Ors also in terms of the book-length story. And if it's strong enough and powerful enough, it should be good enough, you know? Look at Claire Keegan and the book that was shortlisted for the Booker last year. That's a rare example of a slim volume of prose in this country, you know. You power through in Runaway as well. There's just two paragraphs. There's a short introduction and then the rest of it. The first paragraph is something like eight lines. It's a story of just over 2,000 words and the remainder is literally a long second paragraph. I guess, you know, it might have been written in a single sentence, but that didn't quite work out for me. There were moments (laughs) when I had to think of the reader and... uh, allow a full stop, you know. I have sometimes thought of it too as a prose poem, because I I think there is a lot of rhythm and music in the prose. And uh, yeah, it looks almost like a prose poem on the page. Unusually for a story of mine, it doesn't have dialogue, but that's because Liam is alone under that bush next to the Protestant chapel. 
Um, other stories look different on the page because dialogue can occur. I was told once by an American writer, or she suggested anyway, that uh, when I run into difficulties in a story, I turn to dialogue. And she added, just like she did, you know. And I, I really laughed that morning at breakfast when that was said. I'm not sure it was true, but it's a lovely notion that when you get stuck, you have the character say something. You know? <laughs> There's no dialogue here. You're just powered through. And is that partly to just conjure that feeling of Liam spilling the story out to Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you listen to maybe people generally, Irish people in particular, dairy people in particular, you're aware that they just they speak and speak and speak and speak and speak for Scotland or speak for Ireland, as we say, you know. As a rather quiet teenager and even young student going back to visit in my late teens, I used to marvel at the ability of people to speak for, it seemed like hours on end, never mind minutes on end, where I wouldn't have been so vocal. And I started to listen attentively and almost to analyse what they were doing. And I realised that they were saying everything at least twice. You know, you've got the version of a conversation that included direct speech, but then you've got the reported version of it too. Or you've got the reported version of it first, and then only the direct quotation. They also had superlatives like the most beautifulest woman in the world <laughs> that I love. Yeah, there's great energy, humour, colour, warmth in such things. And I try to capture some of that in these stories. Energy, humour, colour, warmth. You'll find them all in Donald McLaughlin's story Runaway, which you can read exclusively at fictional.world. Search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop or internet-ready yoghurt spoon. You'll get a year's worth of exclusive short stories and comics for £20. Open that handy menu at the top on the right-hand side and hit subscribe. That'll also give you unlimited access to our ever-expanding archive of stories from writers including Evie Wilde, Ross Raisin, Adania Shibley and Ali Smith. It's great to hear what you make of all our stories, blogs and podcasts. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter. Or if you prefer things old school, you can always email us on info at fictional.world. Next time, Sabah Khan lights the touch paper for a family row. Suddenly I was seeing um, siblings and cousins and extended family a lot more than what I would have liked to. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and reads from her graphic short story at the door. That's all for this time. Thanks to Donald McLaughlin. And so from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokujeni, thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.